Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm super excited this morning. This is week two in a, a run through the book of Jonah. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we'd encourage you to go back and even listen to last week's sermon online to catch up a little bit. I'll, I'll give you a recap this morning uh, if you weren't here, so hopefully that's helpful. Um, there are three reasons why we as a church are working through the book of Jonah through the month of January. Uh, number one, because the book of Jonah gives us a heavy dose of God's character. And so we get to see God used creation as the theater upon which he displays his sovereignty and his great grace and mercy. And so we always need a heavy dose of the character of God um, as we walk through uh, various facets of life. Uh, number two, Jonah is a very religious guy who grew up in a re very religious subculture where the lines between the gospel and religion can get easily blurred. And for many of us, we, we understand that, especially for those of you who grew up in the Bible Belt. And so we wanna unpack some of the nuances between religion and, and the gospel. And then number three, we just simply get to see God's heart for a particular city. God deeply loved Nineveh and God deeply loves the Southwest corridor of Atlanta just the same. And we wanna be about his mission. He's called us to be about his mission. He wants to use us as instruments of redemption for his glory and our joy. And so we're gonna dive in this morning. If you weren't here last week, we began the story. Jonah is called by God to, to go east and he responds, unlike many of God's prophets, and goes west, gets on a boat uh, to head to South Spain. God has called him to go declare uh, a message of repentance to the Ninevites, who are a very barbaric people. Um, there's a great hostility between uh, the Ninevites and the Israelites at this time. Uh, Nineveh is the greatest uh, international threat to Israel in the 50 years leading up to Jonah's call. And all of a sudden, God says, I want you to go to those people. It would be as if God called you to go uh, over to Syria and uh, ask members of ISIS to stop sinning. And Jonah said, not gonna do that. And so he goes west when God says go, go east. He gets on a boat and uh, ultimately encounters a hurricane that God hurls at him to win him back. Yes, God would do that. He would hurl a storm at us to win us back. He loves us that much. And we see um, these pagan sailors wrestling uh, with all of the plethora of gods that they believe in. Many of them are agnostic. Many of them are pluralist. And, and they're calling out to their gods and their gods aren't responding. So they determine we're gonna have to throw baggage overseas. We're gonna have to save ourselves. Um, neither, neither plan is working. Neither the irreligious plan of crying out to whichever God will listen is working, nor is the moralistic plan of I'm gonna row myself out of this mess. And so finally, they, they toss Jonah overseas when they realize that Jonah is the reason for uh, the plight that they find themselves in. Uh, but we pick up this morning and we're gonna see that God's not going to allow Jonah to die for those men. He's not going to allow Jonah to be confused with Jesus. He's not going to allow us to be confused as to whether Jonah is the coming Messiah. And so we pick up this morning and, and I'm super stoked about this passage. I'm going to see into the heart of the sea this afternoon with uh, just giant beast up on the screen for a couple hours. And um, that is definitely my gig. I'm super stoked about that. And so it's very timely for us to dive into this story this morning. If you're a skeptic, this is a great week to engage the local church. We're gonna talk about whether or not 
uh, a, a giant creature of the deep could swallow a human being. Um, and if you're a Christian uh, who uh, maybe doesn't battle with that kind of skepticism, this morning is for you as well, because we're going to plummet to the bottom of the ocean's uh, depths with Jonah and examine our own lives as Jonah examines his. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jonah chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Um, you can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage um, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. We want you to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Let me, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for this book of the Bible. Uh, what a cool story. Uh, thank you for putting on display through your creation uh, your sovereignty, your providence uh, in the lives of uh, your creatures, uh, your great mercy and grace towards sinners. God, I pray that we would see both of those this morning. I pray that you would help us to see the subtleties between religion and the gospel and that you would free us um, from moralistic striving to earn favor with you. And lastly, I pray that you would uh, burden our hearts for uh, this city uh, where you have us. God, you planted us here for a reason. You surround us with friends uh, family members, neighbors, and coworkers uh, who don't know you or who are jaded toward the local church. Maybe they say, I love Jesus. I just don't love his bride very much. And, and that's part of the mission as well, to re-engage them to, to your body. So would you use us um, to further your mission and to, um, to build your church? Jesus, you said you would do that. Um, we love you. We thank you for the book of Jonah, and we pray that you would work in our hearts um, as we engage the scriptures this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 17 of chapter one. That's actually uh, where chapter two begins in the original Hebrew. So we're gonna pick up in chapter, uh, verse 17 of chapter one, where it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish. This word in the original Hebrew means to, uh, to ordain. In its other verb forms, it means to count, to number, to assign. And I, I personally think the two go hand in hand. If you think back to grade school, um, remember you'd get put into groups and, and the way that would go is the teacher would say, all right, class, I'm gonna assign you a number, one to four, and, and you're gonna get into groups. You're gonna work on today's assignment. So here we go. One, you're a one, you're, you're a two, you're a three. Jamie, Jamie, pay attention, you're a four. And then, all right, raise your hand if you're a one. All right, you guys are gonna go into that corner of the room and work on the assignment. If you're a two, you're gonna go to this corner of the room. If you're a three, you're gonna be over here. If you're a four, you're gonna be over there. Jamie, where did I say you're gonna be? That corner, yeah, okay, good, you're listening, great. I had problems with attention issues growing up. Do you see the correlation here? Um, that there's a, there's a numbering and, a, and an assigning that involves an appointing. It's here's your number, now you go there. That's what God's doing with one of his creatures. He's saying to this giant creature of the deep, hey, you fish, I'm calling your number, you go there. Now, this is what makes it so mind-blowing, and I, I don't even know how to communicate this well to you this morning. Our oceans cover roughly 320 million cubic miles, okay? So if you could go and just take a drive up I-85, drive a mile, mark that off, get that in your brain, and then take a left and go another mile, and now you've marked off the width and the length of a, of a cubic mile. Now imagine if you could then get in a plane and go a mile above the Earth's surface and just create a cube out of that, right? The oceans that make up planet Earth cover 320 million of those cubes. If you took all of the ocean water in the world and started filling up gallon milk jugs until the ocean was empty, 
I don't even know what this number is, but it would take you roughly 330 million trillion jugs to accomplish the task. And in all that vast stretch of waters, God appoints a specific creature that he has made to be right where he wants it to be, and he does so right as Jonah is hurled from the ship, going back to chapter one. If you're a Christian, that's your God. Okay, that's meant to do two things for you. Two light bulbs are meant to go off this morning. One, you're meant to marvel at God, that the ocean is vast, the world is massively huge, but God is bigger. That uh, our best efforts to command the creatures of the deep take place in, in venues like the Georgia Aquarium, right? We have to create tiny little swimming pools in order to contain these great creatures of the deep. Even in the wild, our best shot is to put a tracking device on, on these great beasts to try to follow where they go. And even then, we can't track them until they surface for our satellites to pick them up. I, I'm nerdy when it comes to the ocean, and so I have a shark tracker app on my iPad where I follow great whites and see where they surface. And it's really cool, man. You, like, you may think it's nerdy, but you should try it. And then all of a sudden, you'll be, you'll be talking to your significant other. Oh my gosh, there's a shark right off of South Carolina. This is crazy. That thing's like a few hours away from us right now. Even though we're you know, hours inland, it could get, it could get us. <laughs> That's our best shot at tracking the great creatures of the deep. God says your theme parks, your aquariums are kiddie pools. My playground is the ocean, and I control everything within it, that vast stretch of waters. Not only do I track every creature, I appoint every creature to go where I command it to go. And not just the great creatures of the deep. This is crazy. If you fast forward to chapter four, God appoints worms, the lowest creatures on the food chain. He's making very clear that he's in control of everything. This is what would cause Paul to say in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That God is to be marveled at. And we see that in verse 17 of chapter one. And secondly, you're not only meant to marvel at God, you're meant to trust in God. That if God is sovereign in the life of a fish, in the life of a worm, how much more is he at work in your life? I mean, have you ever wondered if God's forgotten about you? I mean, that may be you today. You may be in that season right now. And this story is for you. This story is meant to remind you that God isn't just tracking you. He hasn't just put, put a, a honing device on you. He's appointed all the days of your life. That's what David meant when he said in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. He goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's amazing. You wonder if God's lost control of your story. He hasn't. He's the author of your story. And the script is not only for his glory, but it's for your good. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, do, do we trust him? Do you trust him? Or, or maybe we should make it even more personal than that and sit with the question, do you trust him with your life, with the script as it unfolds? Even in those moments where it doesn't make sense to you and you're wrestling with how could, how, why would God author this? That the same God who's in control of creatures of the deep and worms and hurricanes he, he's got you. 
Now, here's where the skeptics take issue. You continue to read verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, I want to address this. I don't want us to just move past this haphazardly and, and sweep the hard things under the rug and say, well, we'll, we'll just, you know, you, you, you just need to believe this. Um, we want to address this at a couple of different angles this morning. Um, some people argue that this is nothing more than a parable. Many of you have read the gospel accounts. You see Jesus telling parables from time to time. Some people believe that the book of Jonah is nothing more than a parable. And they argue it based on the fact that Jonah is different from other prophets, that um, you don't have a collection of his uh, prophetic declarations, but rather you have an account of his prophetic ministry. It's, it's narrative. Um, people who argue for parable also argue that there are extraordinary events throughout the book. So the rescue by the fish, that's pretty extraordinary, right? The repentance of the whole city of Nineveh, the remarkably speedy growth of the plant at the end of the book, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, You have what some people would call fanciful exaggerations. You have animals repenting. We'll talk about that next week. How do you make sense of that? The city of Nineveh being described as three days walk, which most historians um, agree that that that's not uh, literally the case. So what do you do with that? Well, there are a couple problems with with approaching this as a parable. Um, Number one, uh, parables are usually on the short side. And you might look at this book and go, well, it's only 48 verses. Um, But in the world of parable, that's actually quite lengthy. Parables are usually simple. They're they're usually accompanied by an explanation. So at the end, you get an explanation of why this story was told. You see that in Jesus's parables. Jonah is very lengthy, it's very complex, and it lacks an explanation at the end. You're you're just kind of left with Jonah outside of the city, sitting in a lawn chair, waiting for the fireworks of destruction to go off in the city of Nineveh, wondering, what is going on with this guy? Has Has any progress really been made in his heart? A parable usually introduces characters in general terms. So if you look at the parables in in the gospel accounts, you see things like there was a master of a house or a man planted a vineyard. Very generalized in terminology. But here we have a historical figure um, named as the main character outside of God. So in terms of historical account, what can we hang our hat on? And this is just one of two angles that I wanna take this morning to argue that this is a historical account. Well, number one, Jonah chapter one, verse one, if you go back to the beginning of the book, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's very similar language to uh, several uh, prophetic books of the Old Testament that no one argues in terms of historical validity. Books like Hosea chapter one, verse one, which says the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Or Joel chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Very similar language. Um, you also have Jonah identified as the son of Amittai in chapter one, verse one. We, we talked about this last week. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14, you see that there was a real historical um, human being by the name of Jonah who was the son of a real historical human being by the name of Amittai. On top of those two arguments, the geographical references point to a historical account. So we're told that Jonah is from a place called Gath Hefer, which is not just a historical city, but it was a very well-known city in Jonah's day. Also, the cities of Nineveh, Tarshish, and Joppa, these cities that you see show up in this story, are historical geographical facts of Jonah's day. But we really could sweep all of that aside because here's the reason that I believe that the book of Jonah is a historical reality, a historical account. 
because Jesus believes that this book of the Bible is a historical reality. Um, if you flip to Matthew chapter 12, you can put a, a pause on Jonah chapter 2 for just a second um, and flip over to Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at verses 38 through 42, and I, I just want to unpack this for just a moment, especially for those who are skeptical like me of wild encounters like what we see in verse 17 of chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 12, as you're flipping there, the scribes and the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and they ask uh, him to show them a sign that would substantiate his claims and his authority um, as the Messiah. And this is how Jesus responds. If you pick up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it's up on the screen. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That Jesus says, just like Jonah was in the fish, so I will be in the tomb. Jesus literally and historically died. He was literally and historically entombed. And he says, what happened to Jonah is a foreshadowing of what's to come for me. Now, if you keep reading in, in verse 41, 41, it says this, the men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That what Jesus is saying is that when he returns, the repentant Ninevites will rise up with Jesus as co-heirs with him to uh, judge those, to bring judgment upon those who fail to repent and turn to Jesus as savior and king. That's pretty crazy. Jesus actually believes that these Ninevites in this story that some believe is parable are gonna be around on the last day with Jesus because they actually repented when Jonah preached in chapter three, as we'll see next week. And if you fast forward one more verse, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, we're told, Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, just like the Ninevites. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the, this is the account of the queen of Sheba who visited King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. No one questions the historical validity of the queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. And Jesus puts that right beside the story of Jonah, um, declaring a message of repentance to the Ninevites. Jesus believes that this actually happened. And so if you're a skeptic in the room, here's the reality. Your problem is not ultimately with Jonah. Your problem is actually ultimately with Jesus. You have to wrestle with the question, is he a liar? Is he taking things that should be in the realm of folklore and the realm of fable and referring to them as fact, seeking to convince people to believe something that isn't true? You, you can't lie to the masses and be a good teacher at that point, a good person. Or, or maybe he's crazy. Maybe this good teacher actually thinks that this crazy myth is real, which if that's the case, he's not a good teacher at all, right? He wouldn't even make the cut as an, uh, an elementary school uh, literature teacher, right? You can't separate fact from fiction, bro, and you call yourself a good teacher. There's a real problem there. Or, or maybe he is who he says he is. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be around from the very beginning. He claimed to fashion the seas and all the creatures that inhabit the seas from the very beginning. If he is who he says he is, then he knows that nothing is impossible, right? In fact, he knows that something far more miraculous than this story that we're reading right now, this morning, is going to happen. 
namely his being raised from the dead. See, as Christians, if our goal is to persuade you, if you're a skeptic in the room this morning, if our goal is to persuade you that a man stayed alive in the belly of a fish for three days, our goal is actually quite small. Here's here's what we believe that we wanna convince you of. We actually wanna persuade you that God entered into human history and took on flesh, lived a perfect sinless life for a little over three decades, died in your place for your sins and rose from the dead conquering sin and death. That's what we want you to believe. That's the miracle that we want you to stare in the face and wrestle with. If you believe that, you believe in the miraculous. And if you believe in the miraculous, then anything is possible. And listen, I'm not coming at this um, as someone who's um, just naive and doesn't wrestle with um, some of the hard texts in the Bible. I'm a skeptic by nature. I didn't grow up with consistency in the church. I I looked at stories like this and said, you've got to be joking me, and and ran for another several years away from, from the church. I don't easily believe stories like this to be true in my own human nature, but that is why salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Faith not so much in the story, as faith in the author of the story, right? By faith, we, we believe that, um, that there's not a story that's too miraculous for God to write. That there's not a story that's too miraculous for God to weave into the tapestry of human history. Now, let me come at this from a different angle because I, I think the reality is that some of us are asking the wrong question. The, the question for some of us is, can God really do these things? And I think the, the better question is, if there's a higher power, what is there in this story that he or she or it couldn't do? Some of us have bought into the lie of realism. There's a, an author, a fiction author by the name of N.D. Wilson, um, highly influenced by C.S. Lewis, and he says this, pushing back against the lie of realism. He says, as he describes our setting, right? If, we, if this were a book, this is our setting. He says, we're on a rock, mostly molten lava flying through outer space at about Mach 86. And we're doing this like a yo-yo being swung around a ball of fire in the sky. That's our setting. What kind of story are we telling? We're immediately in the sci-fi fantasy section of the bookstore embarrassed, hoping that none of our really academic friends will see us. That's this world. It's a fantasy world. It's a crazy fantasy world. He goes on and says, this is a world in which a man walked on water, in which bread came from heaven, in which bread always comes from heaven, in which we're still being held by God, rocketing around a ball of fire in the sky. This is our world. The world is wonderful. It is fantasy. It's not realism as we would call it. And we need to get our eyes open and be more childlike. That I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but guys like C.S. Lewis didn't write the the fiction stories that they wrote to help people escape to another world. It's not at all what they were doing. Rather, guys like C.S. Lewis wrote fiction novels in order to help people better understand this world and the wonder that surrounds us constantly. Some of us are too mature for our own good, I would argue. And that was me all through my adolescence. We've lost all sense of wonder. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton in his famous book, Orthodoxy. He says this, he says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. If you're a parent, you totally get it. 
For grown-up people, he says, are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps, perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. He goes on to say, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. Some of us say, nah, impossible. Give me something logical. Give me something mundane. Give me something boring. I'll believe that. But get rid of all this illogical, miraculous wonder. Wonder is absurd. And to that this morning, I would say, and don't be such a grown-up. And let's not let the religious people off the hook here either because the religious people get so frustrated with irreligious, irreligious skeptics um, calling this story absurd and calling them absurd for believing such a story as this. But religious people completely miss the point too, do they not? The irreligious skeptic uh, fixates on the absurdity of a man surviving for three days in the belly of a fish. The religious uh, person fixates on making sure we get the species of fish right. Like, let's don't screw that up. Both sides, meanwhile, completely miss the miraculous work of God in redemption as we unpack this story, which points to the miraculous redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I think the cry in verse 17 is don't miss it. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way in his commentary. He says, while it is commendable that we should carefully examine the authenticity of such tales, which is why we took a look at this for a moment, there are reasons for caution as we do so. The most important is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. The narrative is not really about the fish at all. It has only a walk-on part in this gripping drama. Focus on the great fish and we may lose sight of the great God. And he goes on to say this, the deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. And we see that clearly in chapter two. As you go back to Jonah chapter two in your Bibles, look at verse one. You're like, are we gonna get out of here today? Yes, I promise we're gonna get out of here today. We're gonna fly by the seat of our pants through this prayer of Jonah's in these 10 verses of chapter two. It says this in verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Finally, right? Anybody who's been around since the beginning of the story going, thank you. Like, God called you to go east. You didn't pray about it. Maybe if you had, you would have followed his calling on your, your life. The sailors tell you to pray to your God when you're on the ship in the midst of a hurricane, and we get no indication that Jonah does so. The sailors themselves are seen praying to God at the end of chapter one. Meanwhile, Jonah is still silent when it comes to prayer, but here, we actually see Jonah praying. Verse two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Now, let me stop here for just a second because I said that there are three reasons we're going through this book of the Bible. And one of those is to unpack the nuances, the subtle nuance between religion and the gospel. That there's, the, there's a difference between a prayer life motivated by religion and a prayer life motivated by the gospel. Religion says this as it pertains to prayer. My prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I am in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. That, that's what a religious heart will drive toward as it pertains to prayer. In contrast, the gospel says this. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration 
My main purpose in prayer is not to control my environment, but simply intimacy with God. Where, where do you find yourself this morning as you engage this story, as you see Jonah praying in a moment of distress? What motivates your prayer life? Do you call out to the Lord only in times of, of distress? Is it always, God, I need this? This is going on, I need you to engage now? Or are there generous stretches of praise and adoration? Is your main purpose in praying to control your circumstances? Or is it to experience intimacy with your maker, your redeemer? This will give you a pretty good idea, pretty good indication as to whether religion has gripped your heart as opposed to the gospel. And, and notice in the story, sometimes the best thing God can do to draw us back into intimacy with him is to allow it all to come unraveled. Jonah's plummeting to the bottom of the ocean. If this were a major uh, Hollywood motion picture, th this thing would go in slow motion now. We, we've been fast-paced, right? Everything would be high action, like the beginning of a Bond movie up to this point. God says, go east. Jonah goes west. He heads to a harbor. He gets on a boat. He meets a group of roughneck sailors. God hurls uh, a storm at him. A God-ordained hurricane comes his way. The boat nearly capsizes. Uh, everyone's crying out in mass hysteria. Jonah gets tossed overboard, and now he's sinking to the bottom. He's plummeting slowly to the bottom of the ocean. Here's where the semi-depressing contemplative song by some indie band would kick in in the background. These scenes are, are they're meant to cause us to reflect, to think, to wrestle with things. Many of us are not huge fans of scenes like this in the Bible, right? Many of us see a section like this and we go, oh, great, poetry. Let's move on to chapter three where the action picks back up again. I don't care about this love scene between Jonah and God. Let's, let's get on with the show. We struggle to slow down a lot of us, don't we? I do. But I think that's exactly what we're meant to do at this point in the story. We're meant to slow down. Remember last week, um, I pointed out as we closed last week that there's this recurring word that shows up in the first couple chapters of the book of Jonah. It's the Hebrew word yarad. It means to descend, to go down. We see go Jonah go down to Joppa, to the port in chapter one, verse three. And then we see him pay the fare and go down into the ship. He's descending further. And then in chapter one, verse five, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And here, in chapter two, verse six, Jonah tells us, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's at the ocean bottom. That this is symbolic, this word, yarad, to descend, symbolic of the direction in which Jonah's spiritual condition is moving as this story progresses. As we see Jonah sinking to the bottom of the sea, there's a sense in which we're, we're dragged beneath the surface of the water with him. We're meant to turn that question inward and ask ourselves, in what direction is my spiritual condition moving? Jonah prays to the Lord in this moment as he's slowly plummeting to the ocean bottom. And there are two things that I wanna point out this morning that, um, that point us to the beauty of the gospel. Verses two through seven, uh, if you read those with me, it says this, this is Jonah's prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land. There's that 
that word, yarad, descend. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Two things in this prayer that point us to the beauty of the gospel this morning. Number one, Jonah acknowledges that he is far more sinful than he ever imagined. For the first time, he's got nowhere to go. He can't jump into the next religious activity to make himself feel better. There's no one in close proximity to impress in this moment. Religion fails him in the belly of the fish. And it's here in the moment that religion fails him that the light bulb goes off for Jonah. I'm a sinner. My sin brought me to this place. Verse two, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Sheol being the world of the dead. I'm knocking on death's door. Verse three, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is the language of a drowning man. Verse four, I'm driven away from your sight. That it's not just about facing physical death, This is about the loss of spiritual intimacy with God. My sin has driven me away from you, God, away from the manifestation of your presence. Verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Listen to this language at the end of verse five and the beginning of verse six. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. You can't get any lower than the roots of mountains at the bottom of the sea. Jonah says, that's where my sin took me. That's how depraved I am before the holy God of the universe. That's how deep the sin problem actually runs in my life. Verse six, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I couldn't get any lower, Jonah says. Woe is me, like Isaiah in chapter six, I'm undone. It's not that I'm so righteous and the Ninevites are a bunch of barbarians, but rather I'm more sinful than I ever imagined. It's time to stop playing the comparison game and to look inward. The question for us this morning is this, do you believe that you're far more sinful than you ever imagined? Do you understand just how deep the sin problem runs in your life? And the answer to that for all of us, just so you know, is no, you don't, and neither do I. We will continue until the day we die or Jesus returns to grow in an understanding of just who he really died for. Until you realize the extent of the bad news, the the good news just won't be that good to you. It's kind of like, if someone said your sin is like a headache, then the cross of Christ is like a bottle of Tylenol. But if you begin to understand that your sin is a great cancer and just how deep it runs and how much God has to do by the power of his spirit to excavate idols and sin and unbelief in our hearts to then free us from those things, we begin to see the cross of Christ loom so much larger in our lives, if, if the cross of Jesus Christ is small for you, maybe this morning it's because you don't see the, the depths of sin and how deep it runs in your life. But, but Jonah doesn't leave us there this morning. It's not just that he acknowledges that he's far more sinful than he ever imagined. It's also that he acknowledges that he's far more loved by God than he ever dared hope. That where sin runs deep, we sing this, God's grace is more. Verse four, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. I'm a sinner. I can't be in your presence, Jonah says. Yet, the back half of verse four, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The temple was the place where God chose to uh, to manifest his presence most fully. Jonah says, I'm a sinner. I can't be in your presence. Yet I shall again be in your presence. What? How does that make sense? 
Verse six, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I went down to the world of the dead, down to the grave. That's how low my sin brought me. Yet, he says, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. I'm a lawbreaker. You said go east, I went west. I deserve to be driven away from your sight, God. I deserve death at the bottom of the sea. Yet, Jonah says, you saved me. Jonah's depravity becomes real to him in this moment, yet so does the grace and mercy of God in a way that it hasn't before. And it causes him to cry out in verse nine, salvation belongs to me? No, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that he can't swim his way out of this one. And he begins to realize that God loved him so much that he took a small fish and ordained it to grow in size so that it would be exactly the size it needed to be on the exact day that Jonah rebelled against God and was thrown into the sea. You could say it this way. God planned Jonah's redemption before Jonah's rebellion. And that's good news for you and me. That God knew that he would create the world. He knew that he would create you. He knew that you would sin. He knew that you would need a savior and he knew that he was sending his son to atone for your sins. It's what I've referred to before as love before time began. That's a love story. That God doesn't love those who love him. He loves those who would never love him. He loves those who went west when he said, go east. That's the God of the Bible. So the second question for us is not just do you believe that you're far more sinful than you ever imagined, but also... Do you believe that you're far more loved by God than you ever dared hope? Do you really believe that, that where sin runs deep, God's grace is so much more? Tim Keller puts these two truths together really well when he says this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at this very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You could say it this way. I'm so bad that the Son of God had to die for me yet I'm so loved that the Son of God was glad to die for me. That's unbelievable. Chapter two is all about the gospel. Chapter two is pointing us to a greater Jonah, that Jesus is the greater Jonah. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12 and look at verse 40 again, Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That as Jonah was swallowed up into the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus was swallowed up into the belly of the earth for three days. But here's the difference. We talked about this last week. Jesus is far better than Jonah. Jonah didn't die. His mission was to preach, not to die. Jesus' uh, mission was to preach and to die that Jonah was in the belly of the fish because of his own sin. Jesus was in the belly of the earth because of your sin and my sin. He died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. And unlike Jonah, he entered his grave willingly. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. And the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't end there. He didn't stay in the belly of the earth. As Jonah came forth from the belly of the fish three days later, as verse 10 tells us, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jesus came forth from the belly of the earth three days later. He rose from death, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. The fact that we're more loved and accepted by God than we ever dared hope is not remotely based on us any more than Jonah could have swam his way to his own salvation. 
God's love and acceptance isn't based on what you do or don't do. God's love and acceptance is based on what Christ has done. And he said three important words when he died. It is finished. It's done. He's done everything necessary to reconcile you to himself. He died for those who will cry out like Jonah, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm far more sinful than I ever imagined, but I, I, I received the truth that I'm far more loved than I ever dared hope in Christ. And, and isn't this the Christian life? If you're a Christian this morning, don't, don't hear me saying this stuff and going, man, I have my moment. Yep, I'm with you. I realize somewhere along the way I'm far more sinful than I ever imagined. I'm far more loved by God than I ever dared hope in Christ. That's when I became a Christian. Since then, I'm just coasting. That's not how the Christian life works. The Christian life is a continual unsurfacing of sin and unbelief and seeing just how deep the sin problem runs and seeing God redeem you from those things as you look at Christ's cross and see it loom that much larger in your life until the day you die. I don't think we get that in this culture that we live in here in the Bible Belt. The cross just remains stagnant. And it can happen for decades and decades. That's not what we're about as a church. If you wanna engage this church, trust and know that we're gonna help you excavate how deep the sin problem runs, but in the wake of that, to see just how beautiful and glorious the cross of Jesus Christ really is. That's what we're after. That's our vision for your life. And listen to the response of the one who's experienced salvation as we close this morning, verses eight and nine. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That the appropriate response to God's love and mercy toward us is I'm done with my idols. I'm smashing them. As the gospel takes deeper root in your, in your life, the anti-gospels that you've been preaching to yourself get uprooted. And you begin to declare things like self-righteousness can't lead to ultimate joy for me. The approval of man can't lead to ultimate joy for me. White knuckling the circumstances of my life all the time can't lead to ultimate joy for me. And we could go on and on and on with a thousand anti-gospels that we declare to ourselves all the time. But God wants more for us than that. He wants to redeem us from those anti-gospels by way of the beauty of the gospel. My hope for every one of us in this room, myself included, is that the truth continues to take deeper root in our hearts, that we are far more sinful than we ever imagined. Yet in Jesus Christ, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dared to dream. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. Uh, we do this here by... Uh, taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, James will direct you when it's time to come receive communion. Uh, as you do, just sit with those two questions. Do I really believe that I'm far more sinful than I ever imagined? Do I really believe that I'm far more loved and accepted by God in Christ than I ever dared dream? How, how large does the cross loom in my life? Is the cross the... the um, the atoning equivalent of a bottle of Tylenol at a heart level for me? Or do I see it as so much more expansive who Jesus is and what he's done for me? Sit with that and then come when you're ready and take the bread and dip it in the cup. If you're not a Christian, and I would love to chat with you, if it's about your skepticism, your doubt as you engage this story, I um, would love to talk more about that with you. 
Uh, If you find yourself living in the land of agnosticism, like the pagan sailors in chapter one, man, I don't know who God is. I'm just crying out to something or someone to respond in my times of devastation and need. Or if you're like the sailors in the other regard, very religious, throwing things overboard, trying to row your way uh, into God's good graces. And I would love to talk with you more about how the gospel frees you from both of those miserable ends. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.